It's not always the big things that change the world. It's the small acts of kindness that happen repeatedly over a lifetime that make the world a better place. So every week we share a story of someone like you who is doing good in the world in their own way. Welcome to Doing Good with Carmen Herbert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Good. I'm your host, Carmen Herbert, and today on the show, I'm so excited to welcome Stephen Harper. Stephen is a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, and in 2012, he was appointed as the managing historian and a general editor of Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Stephen earned an MA in American history from Utah State University, where your thesis analyzed determinants of conversion to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Chapters of that were published in the Journal of Mormon History and Religion and American Culture and awarded by the Mormon History Association with the T. Edgar Lyon Award for Best Article of the Year in the Juanita Brooks Award for the Best Graduate Student Paper. Steve earned a PhD in Early American History from Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. You've taught at BYU, at the Jerusalem Center, and then you, you became a volume editor at the Joseph Smith Papers and have written several books, Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith's First Vision, and First Vision, Memory and Mormon Origins, along with dozens of other articles. So you know your stuff about church history <laughs> and the restored gospel. Like, would you call yourself an... I know a lot about a little. So You know a lot about a little. Okay, yeah. I like that. I uh, am an expert in early church history, especially the revelations of Joseph Smith is my area of interest and research and most of my teaching. So tell me what got you interested in that, <laughs> in a nutshell. Great no, question. tell me your life story. Well, uh, several things, but one day I remember this uh, pretty vividly. My grandmother, who had to be in her early 90s at the time, uh, was sitting in our family room. She was living with my family at the time. I was visiting with her and I had recently gotten quite interested in the revelations. I had served a mission and really read them for myself the first time as a missionary. And there were a couple of key passages in them that really spoke to me. I remember a passage in section 93 of the Doctrine and Covenants that felt like it was being said anew to me, obtain a knowledge of history and of countries and kingdoms and this from the salvation of Zion. Just, oh, wow. It just felt like it was sort of a personal note from God to me when I had that experience on my mission. So, and then I, I got home, I got back into college and started to study history and be, be drawn especially to Joseph Smith and his experiences. So I was quite excited and I was talking to my grandmother about some manuscript revelations that were part of the uh, William McClellan papers that were being published by some, some really fine scholars. So it was during this conversation where she said to me, don't you think he made some of them up? And that, that came out of the blue for me. It was, wow, it was quite a question. And I wish now that I was, I could talk to her again. She since passed away, but it'd be great to visit with her and, and get more sense of what she was thinking and understand yeah. better. There are people, including some Latter-day Saints who think he made some of them up and have different explanations for the challenging 
uh, and difficult things we find in Joseph Smith's revelations. But I have been asking myself and the revelations that question ever since. And my answer to that question is, I do not think he made any of them up. And so I've been, I've been really seriously interested in Joseph Smith's revelations for about 30 years and I try to get everybody else to be as interested as I am. And have a testimony of them. And, and that is interesting that, that your grandma would say that. And I'm sure now that, now that she's on the other side, she probably is getting a lot of those answers. <laughs> I wish, I wish she could funnel me news. I know. Tell us what's going on up there. So it, it is, it, it is fascinating that someone like you can read the revelations and have a stronger testimony and other people can think that is strange or I, I don't believe that. Why, why do you think there is so much criticism, especially with the restoration and the early church. I mean, I know it wasn't perfect. It was started with imperfect people. It was started from, I mean, they're restoring everything. So it's like step by step from the ground up, little by little. They have a little revelation here and a little there. So things, people made mistakes. Some people thought, well, let's do this. And okay, that's a good idea. You know, they had to learn how to organize everything. But why do you think there is so much criticism in particular about, about Joseph Smith and, and what he saw and, and heard? And, and what have you learned in studying those revelations? Great, great questions. The fact that there's immense criticism of Joseph Smith is no surprise. It's, it was prophesied. Yeah. An angel stood in his bedroom when he was 17 years old and told him, his name would be known for good and evil everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking here today because that is true. Because yeah. that prophecy has been fulfilled. So the really cool question you asked is why has that been fulfilled? Why? You know, Joseph writes of himself and says, I don't understand this. I'm an obscure boy. 14. Indeed. Really impressive New England blue blood. A fellow named Josiah Quincy visited Joseph Smith in Nauvoo and wrote about it later and said, he has the homeliest of all human names. He's a nobody. Yeah. He had manure on his boots and he hadn't yeah. even shaved. Yep. And these kind of things tell us that people expect a lot from Joseph Smith. There, there are immense assumptions about what he will be if, and the if is is crucial if she's a prophet. And so a part of an answer to your question is that we project onto Joseph Smith, what he should have, what he ought to be. And then when he doesn't match our projections, our assumptions, we, uh, there's dissonance. We find, we tend to find fault with that. This is not an objective way or a scientific way to discover truth. It's simply a matter of expectations and assumptions. Yeah. Another point to make is that there is so much at stake. You ask, why do people, why are people so invested in this? You know, I'm, I'm putting decades of my life into it as a, a believer and someone who wants to teach and talk about the revelations of Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. 
there are other people who put as much energy and as much time into, uh, into undermining Joseph Smith's reputation or a belief in his revelations and so yeah. forth. Why is that? I think an answer is there is so much at stake. This isn't a question about which sports team you like best, right? People right. Get, people get emotional and heated about that, but this is, this is exponentially more consequential. Yes. And well, it's true. I mean, really eternity. I mean, your salvation. I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing. And if you can, if you can believe it's wrong or prove it's wrong, there's really no consequence to the things that you do. And you don't have to feel guilty for the, for the way that you live and the choices that you make. But if it's right, there's also a lot at stake to live up to. Yeah. The revelations have claim on me, right? Yes. Uh, if the Book of Mormon is true, then I, I feel obligated to behave better or differently than I right. would if it wasn't. If Joseph Smith's revelations are true, then I can be with the people I love most forever and ever. Yes. Um, and there are lots of, therefore, reasons to hope and believe and come to know for ourselves whether they're true or not. And just in the same way, or conversely, I guess we could say, there are powerful incentives to fight against Joseph Smith's revelations. And, and of course, that's what, that's what people do. Yes. I mean, vehemently, like people, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me how I, and I've had family members and, and several very dear friends leave the church. They never leave it alone. They never leave it alone. It's, it's, it's something that they fight against fight loudly against and have to keep bringing up and keep bringing up and they can't just peacefully walk away and say you know what i'm i'm on a different journey or this isn't for me that's what they say mm. and then here come all the posts about the anti-mormon literature and and things that they've read and they can't get away from it it's and one of my friends was kind of saying oh i People say I'm one of Satan's minions and she kind of laughed about it and it made me feel so sad. And she's like, that, that's okay. I can be, I don't believe in Satan really either, you know, so whatever, call me whatever. But it, it, it is amazing how that was prophesied too. You know, it's like the things that, the very things that she's doing and leading people astray and it, it breaks my heart, but it's, she doesn't see it as that. She sees us as, you know, we've been indoctrinated and brainwashed. Yeah. And so what would you what would you say to someone that has maybe read something from church history or the restored gospel, you know, back in the Joseph Smith time that felt so strongly that they it's shaken their testimony and they are maybe on the verge, maybe someone's listening and they're like, I just can't get past this one thing. And I really love Saint because it's kind of opened the door to, okay, Here's a lot of what happened and and Joseph Smith getting in fights in the temple, you know, like people like, like things that you're like, what that you can't and, and in fights with his brother and wrestling on the ground. I mean, there's lots of, it shows a lot of the imperfections of people, which of course we all know we have, but like you said, sometimes we set them to higher standard, but what would you say to people that are like, I just cannot get past this issue. I cannot, this is a stumbling block for me. And I heard something or I read something about marrying someone young or whatever, 
And so, so, so first question, what would you, what would you say to them from someone that's come across that? Oh, this is a great question. The first thing I want to do in this situation is I want to hear them. I want to understand what it is that they're thinking or feeling or experiencing. So I'm most inclined to start asking them questions. And I don't mean like cross-examining on, on a witness stand kind of question. Right. I mean, I real, I'm, I, I mean, I studied this stuff academically besides, you know, being a believer myself. So I'm quite interested in conversion uh, and what I sometimes call deconversion, just for lack of a better term. What I like that. that. What is it that causes people to come to believe that and convert? What is it that causes people to unconvert? Yes. And it's a fascinating phenomenon, both, both sides of it. And I think it's quite actually closely related. I think there are similar things at work for people who come to be converted and, and unconverted. So, boy, I'm trying to think where to go. There's, there's tons and tons we could talk about, but I know, I know wherever you once, feel. Once, once I feel like I understand where the person is coming from and if they're interested in, you know, thinking about what could I do if I wanted to strengthen my faith, then I always default to asking them some variation on what do you know and how do you know it? And the point here is to get them to slow down in their thinking. You might know the work of the Israeli psychologists who spent their career studying bias and the, the, the famous book right there. Thinking fast and slow. Oh yeah. Okay. So we, by nature, by sort of by default, humans think fast. Thinking fast is another way of saying we think in, in biased terms. We think in shortcuts. Uh, we're, we're right enough and that it, that it sort of works in our favor day to day, keeps us alive, but it's not a good way to think about ultimate things. Right. So we have to slow down in our thinking. We have to become more metacognitive, more aware of what it is we're thinking. We have to analyze our thoughts. And so I like to invite people to figure out what they really know and how they know it. When they do that, inevitably, inevitably, they yes. find that they don't know as much as they think they know. You know, Joseph Smith did this or said that. What do you really know and how do you really know it? And this requires us to then dig into the source material. And I've never done this myself or done it with anyone else where we didn't realize in the process of thinking slowly that we came to a different conclusion than the one we started with, than the default reaction we started with. That's really interesting to take it, to take a step back and say, let's talk about what we know, because really, and when I was talking with my friend about this and she was presenting me with all sorts of books and material that she had read, and she said, this proves this, right. and they were very, they were very persuasive. I mean, mm -hmm. and it made me think like, wait a minute, that seems so strange. And she's like, here's the source. And she did deep diving. I mean, she had a stack 
of books oh. on her nightstand. And and I'm sure you've heard of all the titles. I'm sure you you would know yeah. everything that she's she read of early Mormon history and 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 the whys of everything. But she oh said that I've read the stuff that those books are based on, right? I I've read I've deconstructed those books. You've well and I would, I mean, we could probably talk for hours just about that too. But something she said was interesting. She said, you have to remove yourself emotionally mm-hmm. because your heart or, will tell you one thing or what you believed in your past. And I'm like, you mean the spirit? <laughs> like, she's like, you have to just think intellectually with your mind. And I'm like, what a fantastic tool of Satan to be like, don't feel anything with your heart read it just with your mind, remove all emotion from it, and then study it out. It's like that, of course, that would be so easy for then for him to snare you when you're like, don't rely on the spirit of, oh, do I have a pit in my stomach when I'm in my gut when I'm reading this? Nevertheless, the facts that you talked about, like, where did these come from? And I said, really, when it comes to you and I, and, and, and I would love to I probably need to do a better job at listening because my initial reaction is save and no wait instead of yeah. sitting back and in and, and discomfort and letting them talk. But I said, really, you're just letting other men or women influence you and I'm letting other men and, and women influence me. Like you're trusting what you believe based on what these people wrote and I'm trusting what I believe based on what these people wrote. So how can you really proof she's like oh this is proof and I said well but then this is also proof so it's like who do you really trust it comes down to which men or women are you following and I I would like to follow the men and women that I believe are are servants of, of heavenly father no but but I but I but I love what you say about okay so let's talk about the the books that have been out there and and things like you said if you read them all and heard was there a time ever that you came across something that you were like ooh wait a second that like maybe not weakened but maybe that you questioned some things or or challenged your testimony or has this your studies and your profession only solidified and made you stronger this is a, a hard question for me, me to answer because I think the answer that people will be expecting is different from my actual experience. Let me try my best. Let me say first, though, that it is impossible to dis- dissociate ourselves from our feelings and emotions and so forth. Yes. I'm going to, when, there's lots and lots of research that shows you don't escape your bias. What, what we need to do is educate our biases. Okay. So think, you know, thinking metacognitively, we, we become aware that we are full of bias. Right. We know that then we, we pay attention to that. We attend to our biases. We educate them. We listen to people of different opinions. We read all of the historical material, whether we like it or not, whether it's uh, confirming of our views. I, we have a plague right now, people who only listen to uh, or read the news outlets that agree with their political views as well. Yep. Uh, what a disaster. That just pleads yes. confirmation. Uh, yes. By, so I, as a historian, you cannot do that. And I, I just by personality cannot do that. Yeah. I want to know what all the, I want to know not only the good that's said of Joseph Smith, I want to know the evil that's said of him. And I don't want anyone else to evaluate for me what those various testimonies, and that's really all they are, what they mean. So you'll notice that the people who are 
uh, losing faith in Joseph Smith or never had it to begin with. Yes. Or who say awful things about him or the ones who say great things about him or who are maintaining their faith. They all have access to the same facts. Right. It's not a matter of knowing different facts. I, I grant that some people are completely ignorant and don't know what they're talking about. But among those of us who know what we're talking about, there are people who are all across the spectrum of belief and faith and, and so forth. So this is simply to say it's not a matter of the facts of history. Yeah. That's not the determining factor of faith or the lack thereof. So your friend can say, I've got this stack of books and it proves once and for all that any reasonable person, if they just did their homework, would come to yes. the same conclusion I have. Yes. That's demonstrably not true. Yes. And it's, it works the other way too. I, I, uh, I, sometimes people of faith say, well, if you had a, a brain in your head and any faith at all, you'd have to believe the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. That's not true either. So we have to be a little more respectful of each other. We, we get to act on our agency. We get to choose what to, to decide, what we decide the facts mean. Yes. And what claim they have on us. But sorry, let me get back to your terrific question. Or do you want to? No, no, keep. I love this. Nope, you can keep going. So I, before I knew that I was interested at all in church history, I was called to serve a mission and thought I had better read the Book of Mormon. So I did. And I knelt by my bedside when I was finished and said a very simple prayer the sincere heart and real intent and faith in Jesus Christ and received as an answer, uh, a feeling that the book was true and a thought in my head, the thought was, you already know it's true. And yeah. the feeling was, uh, a, a kind of confirmation that I, I struggle for words to describe it. I don't quite know how to, to make, make it make sense to other people who haven't experienced it, but it was a confirming feeling of that thought and it's yeah. as real as anything I've ever experienced and it's enduring. It hasn't faded. It hasn't, I haven't forgotten it. I know by the power of the Holy ghost that the book of Mormon is true. Well, I therefore know that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he atoned for the sins of the world. He was resurrected from the dead, uh, that he sent an angel to Joseph Smith to reveal to him a book written on gold plates. Joseph Smith subsequently translated that book by the gift and power of God. So I, I know those things and that hasn't changed. Those, those things are not based on me doing historical homework yes. alone. They're based on a spiritual experience, having read, you know, the key text. And so Davis Bitten, a very fine scholar since passed away of church history, once wrote a profound essay where he said, I don't have a testimony of church history. And he was trying to make this same point saying, my testimony is in Christ. It's of Christ. It's by the power of the Holy ghost. I didn't gain it by the historical method Yeah, and I've never lost it by the historical method. That's how I feel too. I don't study the history of the church to try to strengthen my faith. My faith is sound and solid and it hasn't been weakened by studying church history, but I, I'd also say it hasn't necessarily been strengthened either. History is, I don't know, I don't think of it as a tool for, for faith, for strengthening or weakening faith. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I think of it as a means of knowing. 
right? I study history because I have to know. I have to know the past that went into my present and future. Uh, and into the past and future, the present and future of everything that I think is really important and sacred. That's why I study church history. It's, it's, a, a, it's a need to know. A need to know. I, I love that. And I feel like we, especially with saints, and we've had the third one, right, come out recently. That's right, volume three. Volume three. Exciting. Yes, it is. And and I feel like we do, and, and we owe, I don't know, I I feel like we, we owe our, our ancestors and those who've gone before us, we owe them that to learn about what they went through to get us where we are and the sacrifices and trials that they went through and to be relatable, like people that struggled and had a hard time and lost children and, and left homes and got in debates and fought about things. It's, it, it makes them relatable and it helps us put our modern day trials in perspective as well. And I, I, I really love that you shared about gaining your testimony before your mission about the Book of Mormon and, and that experience. And Joseph Fielding Smith said, through the Holy Ghost, the truth is woven into the very fiber and sinews of the body so that it cannot be forgotten. And I read a talk recently, and I'm going to have to find it about this specific thing of seeing an angel having like physical knowledge of the afterlife versus having an experience with the spirit. And I can't remember who said it. I'm going to look it up now and, and I'll, ha I'll have to put it in our little notes when, when we post this. But he, it was one of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and, and, and he said, physically seeing something is not as strengthening as, as feeling it manifested through the power of the Holy Ghost. That actually stays with you longer speaking spirit to spirit than a physical eye seeing something. And he's like, I know it seems like no way. If, if I just saw my grandma, you know, who passed away, or if I, if I saw an angel or if I heard the voice of the Lord physically, how could you doubt? And he's like, think about Laman and Lemuel. They saw angels multiple times. They still fell away. Like think about people that have had those physical experiences, you know, with miraculous things, the children of Israel. I mean, that we're studying right now. I mean, manna from heaven and parting the Red Sea, and they still fell away and, and murmured. And he said, but the experiences that you have personally with the Holy Ghost will strengthen and your testimony more than anything else. Yeah, there's been some good research to make the point that you know, sociological research that was interested in investigating what is it that helps Latter-day Saints to uh, be firm in their faith? Yeah, uh, we've all heard that, you know, if you live off the Wasatch front, you're a teenager, you're more likely to be firm in the faith because you kind of have to um, stick up for yourself and you're on your own. And, and then we've heard, well, if you live on the Wasatch front, you're surrounded by a lot of faithful people and it's easier. And turns out neither one of those uh, are determinative at all. It turns out that someone's personal experience with the Holy Ghost with the love of God is the most significant determinant in whether they remain faithful to their covenants or not. I believe that. It's certainly true for me. And I can think of lots of other uh, examples of where it's true. I, yeah. Once you've experienced it, doesn't mean you don't have choice anymore. You can just right. do with it, whatever you will, but it is powerful 
to be able to say, I know God lives and loves me. And I felt his spirit and uh, nothing can take that away from people can reject that, but they can't refute it. Exactly. Right. And, and I, and I think that is one of the most beautiful gifts and ways that heavenly father chose to show his love instead of, I mean, easily when you're eight years old, he could say, okay, when everyone's eight, an angel will visit them and say, this is the true church and you should get baptized. And he didn't. Instead, he gave us the gift of the Holy Ghost to confirm that for us as a child. And that was, was the strongest way to remember and to start gaining a relationship with Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ is, is through the Spirit. And I agree that those are the experiences that you have to keep seeking them out. And, and it's like, you know, you don't eat once a week. So you can have one spiritual experience and say, I'm good. That nourished me. I'm done. It has to be a repetitive thing, but that they build on each other and form this just unbreakable bond of, nope, I know. And, and it's like you said, it's, it's hard. It's hard to refute that when someone says, well, but I felt the spirit. I mean, what can you say? Like, no, you didn't, you know, like, yes, I did. Like it's, you can't argue that. Yeah. And it's common for folks who've lost that to say, you know, it never was real anyway. Yes. I was making it up. or I never really felt it. Me. Yeah. This is what, um, well, one very influential book published about, oh, I don't know, even more than a decade ago now by Grant Palmer. It's what, it's what uh, his experience was like. He talked about thinking he felt the spirit as a youth, uh, but really learning later that the guy who was speaking was making stuff up and, and he was actually just deceived that he thought he was feeling the Holy Ghost. And so people who have those kind of experiences lose all confidence in yes. the spirit and attribute it to emotion or manipulation. Yeah. And as you know, sometimes there is emotion manipulation in church settings and that can make things confusing and compound problems, but that none of that negates what I am quite certain of. And that is that there is a Holy spirit and I have experienced its influence and uh, you know, you could pull my fingernails out and I don't think I could, I could deny that I've experienced the Holy Ghost. So how, what would you say to people who are conflicted with that and, and, and are thinking, well, it was emotion or I, it was just what I was told to feel. And it felt good to me because the people I love were telling me to feel that way. And, and now I don't. And, and that's, it's my mom's like, I couldn't write a textbook from everyone that's left the church. I can say every phrase they'll say, everything. She's like, it's like clockwork. Like Satan is not very, he's very smart and yet he's not. She's like, he uses the same tactics, the same things. He, it, it's, it's the same. It's, she's like, it's just, this is what they'll say. This is what they'll do. This is, I never loved that person. I never felt the spirit. We were being manipulated, whatever. So what would you say to someone that, that, has felt that way, or maybe has a, a child or a parent or a loved one that is going through that and saying, yeah, I actually think I've, I've never felt that. And it's not really real. How would you go about, go about gaining that testimony back and feeling the spirit again? Oh, this is a good question. It depends if you're asking the natural man, me or the firing. <laughs> So the, the natural man, the worst part of my nature would be a jerk 
and a bully and maybe tell them how, how short-sighted they are, how dumb their choices are. And that will never work. That's not the Lord's way. It would be me compounding the problem. I imagine him sort of shaking his head thinking, and people like you on my side, and it's really doubly difficult. So, but if I was on my best behavior, I would be filled with faith and hope and charity. And I'd be much, much more interested in this person as a child of God, as my sister or my brother, than I would be in sort of winning them to my way of thinking. And there would be no chance of, of helping them to feel God's love for them if I was a jerk. And if, yeah. I mean, if, if they're going to associate me with church, right? Right. This, this guy is, is church. He wears the white shirt. He has the tie. He symbolizes. So if what I am to them is a jerk and the, the epitome of all the things they've come to hate and associate with, with an oppressive culture and, and so forth with gaslighting or whatever, then I have, uh, hurt rather than helped. I've actually made it worse instead of better. But if I can have real love, real charity, and along with it, the faith and hope, then I can minister. I can actually maybe do some good. And I've learned that it will happen much, much better if I listen instead of talk, if I'm if I'm less inclined to give the lecture than I am to try to hear what they're, what they're thinking, feeling, experiencing, and then talk with them instead of at them, that, that tends to work better. And that doesn't mean that everybody uh, comes to believe just what I believe, but it does help me to be a better uh, Christian and helps them to be more likely to feel the Lord's love for them. Well, I, I'm so grateful, Stephen, that you've taken the time to come on this podcast today and, and talk with us about your experiences with church history. And I would love to know as we wrap up one, one last thought or, or maybe one quick experience that you've had, maybe working on saints as, as an editor and maybe an experience or, or, or someone you've met or like something that you learned that you didn't know before that that has strengthened your testimony and maybe a push for us to, to read those. And I mean, they're, they're incredible, but I know some people are like, oh, they're so long. I don't know if I should listen or what if I hear something and I get nervous or whatever. So maybe a push for, for why we should be reading saints. Oh, wow. Okay. A commercial for saints. <laughs> a commercial for saints. Cause wow. I, I have, I have such a testimony of it and I've loved listening. And so I, I want my friends and family to, to tune in and listen to. And I think it's just incredible. Well, I will say this, that if people don't read them or listen to them, they're going to be late to the party and they're going to miss the party. Okay. Saints will reshape the collective memory of the Latter-day Saints over the course of this generation. Wow. And that will happen whether everybody reads it or not. Everybody's not going to read it. A really right. a small fraction of saints will read it, but it will have a powerful influence in that it will start to shape the curriculum. It will be in the seminary discussions. Seminary teachers who don't read it will know less church history than their students do. And it will be a 
corrective in some ways, the, some of those stories we've told before that aren't accurate or full complete will be, will now be told differently. Some of the things that have shocked people, uh, my age, when they learned them, when they were 35, will to the kids growing up, they'll be like, duh, that's in saints chapter two. I read that when I was 12 years old, you know, what's, what's the matter with you? So the, the feeling like you've been lied to that comes with just being ignorant, right? Not, not, not that this information didn't um, exist, but for one reason or another, you weren't privy to it. Yes. That will, that will be uh, minimized by saints. So these are reasons, you know, people can choose to read it or not, but yeah. it's going to be, to be in the know, uh, people are going to want to read saints. That is very compelling. <laughs> And and incredible that we now have that as a resource. And why do you think now what what has happened or what's changed or what is it preparing us for that the church said now is the time to reveal more? And because like you said, it was never this secret hidden thing. It just it just probably wasn't the right time or maybe we, with technology yeah. we didn't have access to everything so fast to compile things together and learn about things and cross-reference and why do you think now is the time that this is available to us there was a time when it was thought best to quarantine my, my parents when they were youth they got a bad virus in the house they were quarantined by the county health people and get a sign on the house and says nobody comes in or out of here yeah. Uh, that was the best way to handle that then. It's not the best way to handle it today. So the analogy here is complex information about the past, about the church's past, including information that could be, that, that might just be complex to process. Yeah. But also stuff that is just plain bad, or just plain awful, sickening, disgusting, like the Mountain Meadow Massacre, for which there's no excuse. So for a long time, we put that under a bushel uh, yeah. or worse. Yeah. We hit it. We quarantined information. Well, in the information age, you can't quarantine information. So what you do, this is the, uh, the analogy that the prophets are using. President Nelson, Elder Ballard is inoculation. You give vaccines. Saints is a vaccine, a powerful one. Interesting. And it works. It, it, I, I've got my COVID uh, vaccines and boosters. And when I got the vaccine, I was, I was, I felt pretty miserable for about eight hours. And this it might have a similar effect. The saints might make people who've never heard or experienced any of this stuff. It might give them heartburn or a little trouble for a while, but the plot resolves and the vaccine takes effect and they're much more resilient after than they were before. It's not a bad thing. In other words, for them to confront the complexity of church history and to come to terms with it and, and read the whole story. So a little bit of sickness along the way is much better than a complete fatality. Yes. Uh, because they didn't know any of it or were never exposed to any of it. And then when they're 35, they're Googling first vision to give a sacrament talk. And, two days later they're out of the church right because exactly. they, they know some stuff so 
I, I love that comparison. I think that's a great way to to talk about saints and and what it is, and that it's it's a protection for us against all the false doctrines and and everything that comes out that and maybe not even false, but that maybe it's from sources that are seeking to pull you away instead of strengthen your testimony. So it's presented in a way that it is, you know, even worse and negative. And, and, and I love that, that you said, yeah, you have to be able to read it and confront it and know what it's about. And so then, yeah, you're not blindsided when you're older of what did he say? And what did he do? And who's this person? And you're like, oh yeah, I, I already know about that. And little by little and volume by volume, we can get those inoculations and be strengthened and fortified and then ready to talk to people that do have those questions. Well, I heard this and I heard that. You're like, oh yeah, I read that too. And here's actually, like you said, the plot resolves, the ending to that. And and here's how it worked out for the better. And then that's not the end of the story. So I think that's a great analogy. We're getting vaccinated. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time today to come on the podcast with me. And for all the good you are doing with church history at BYU and helping get these amazing saints books out to all of us. 